This is Blankenship on Trial, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's podcast about former Massey CEO Don Blankenship and the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. I'm Scott Finn, Executive Director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We'll look at the evidence, the arguments, and why it matters. This is Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. So it's the first full week of the Blankenship trial. We had a couple of days of jury selection, and today we had some bombshell testimony from a woman who was a former miner at Upper Big Branch and the fiancé of one of the miners who died. We're going to hear about this from our reporter Ashton Mara, who's been covering the trial since its start, and Charleston attorney Mike Hissom. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney, now in private practice, and he worked on the very early stages of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster investigation, but before they got to the Blankenship part of it. So, Ashton, talk about this witness today, Bobby Pauly. So, Bobby Pauly is actually the second witness that we've seen so far. She worked at the Upper Big Branch Mine before the explosion. She was an underground miner, and she spoke about the conditions at UBB. She talked about things like water coming into the mine, seeing places in the mine where there was water all the way to the roof. She talked about cheating on dust samples. She said that miners were sometimes told to either remove these dust pumps that they wore on their jackets that measured the amount of coal dust in the air. They'd either remove those from their jackets and leave them in a cleaner part of the mine, or sometimes she said they were told to put them underneath their coats so that they were protected from the coal dust. She talked about this safety program at UBB called S1P2, which stood for Safety First, production second. She said, quote, miners at UBB scoffed at S1P2, that it was a joke to them. And the other thing that was really important about Bobby Pauly's testimony today was talk about ventilation. She admitted that she was not a ventilation expert, but said she could tell when she was underground that the air was hot, that it was stagnant. It didn't feel like it was flowing through the mine, which is a really big safety concern. The other important part about Bobby Polly's testimony was she was one of the people who actually made phone calls. The prosecution says that people at UBB, when a mine, spe- mine inspector showed up, they called and warned people underground so that they could start running safely. And this is illegal. You, you, you're not allowed to call ahead into the mine and tell them that, that the inspectors are coming. It's supposed to be a surprise inspection, right? Well, MSHA officials do have to tell someone at the mine that they're going to be there. But this idea of a guard at the front gate calling the office to say an MSHA official is on site and the office calling underground to then tell miners an MSHA inspector is here, clean up what you're doing, that is not allowed. So she actually made those phone calls and told the jury that I was directed to do this by upper level management. Chris Blanchard, the president of the mining company, stood in front of me and said, make that phone call and watched her do it. Mike, that's pretty damning testimony about unsafe conditions in the mine. So if you're the defense team, how do you ask her about that? How do you uh, go about cross-examining her? Well, the first and most important part of cross-examination today, Scott, focused on who was responsible for health and safety at the mines. The defense questions focused on the mine management level uh, and even individual miners uh, asking questions along the lines of if it was up to each individual miner to look out for each other. The implication is that it's not at the corporate level where the responsibility for health and safety lies. The government did a pretty nice job of coming back to that point in the redirect uh, of Ms. Polly's uh, questioning. They asked her, was there anybody at the supervisory level of Massey who wasn't responsible for health and safety? And she said, no, everybody was. 
And they said, did that include the CEO, Mr. Blankenship? And she said, yes. And that's where they ended with her. So that was pretty effective. So the argument, part of it, though, is going to be that uh, how is the CEO supposed to know what violations are going on in, a, in just one of his many mines, and that it was really up to the miners and the mine level supervisors. That's is that the, the the defense's argument, as far as you can tell. Yes, that seems to be the approach, and and that's where there are going to be other witnesses who are going to link that up. Miss Polly focused on her managers, on the mine level managers at Upper Big Branch at UBB. She focused on. The, the fact that she was directed by each of those mine-level managers to, as Ashton said, call out when an IMSHA inspector was on site, was on the property. She also, on cross-examination, um, the defense walked into a trap with Ms. Polly of some sort. They were asking her about whether she had made these calls in front of these managers, and she said yes, and she volunteered that not only she had made these calls in front of a manager named Gary May, but that she had made a call on one occasion in which Mr. May was standing next to an IMSHA inspector. And Mr. May later told her that she shouldn't do that. She couldn't do that while the IMSHA inspector was on site. So she seemed like an effective witness, according to what you're telling me, for the prosecution. But if she's the fiancé of one of the men who died in the mine, why didn't that come up? Why didn't didn't the defense bring that up? Scott, we don't know for sure why the defense didn't ask about that. I think it's safe to assume that they wanted to stay away from that topic. Uh, the issue of the explosion, uh, the aftermath of the explosion came up briefly with Miss Polly. She was asked about uh, whether she had ever met Don Blankenship, and she said she had met him at the memorial service. And the defense elicited the testimony that she went up to him and gave him a hug. And she said that's how she normally greeted people. So um, she is the first big witness to talk about Upper Big Branch, and she's a woman which is kind of interesting because the jury is majority women. Ashton, talk a little bit about the jury. What do we know and what do we not know about them? Right. Because the jury selection kind of took place behind closed doors, we don't know a lot about them. But the makeup is 11 women and four men. So clearly it's not split evenly. Um, There are 12 jurors, three alternates. We do know from a transcript that was... I would say, unintentionally placed on the public docket earlier this week, um, that one of those jurors is juror number 16, and that she told the judge she had traveled 84 miles, so I'm assuming from the Parkersburg area, to be here and to be a part of the jury, that she didn't know anything about UBB, and she'd never heard of Don Blankenship before. Well, Mike, as a former prosecutor, I'm wondering how common is it to find jurors who don't know about big cases like this. It seems to someone in the news business very very hard to believe that someone just has no idea who Don Blankenship is. Sure. Actually, it happened, Scott. Uh, famously, in the Roger Clemens trial in D.C., they were able to seat jurors who had never heard of Roger Clemens. Most of them didn't know anything about baseball, never watched a baseball game. It happens. The Parkersburg area is, is it happens to be where I'm from. It's geographically and culturally distinct from southern West Virginia, and there are people in the mid-Ohio Valley who have no affiliation to the coal industry. Yeah, I think that's an important note to make. I mean, I'm from Clarksburg and north central West Virginia. Even though there are there is mining in Harrison County, we don't think of ourselves as a mining community. At least I didn't consider myself growing up in a mining community. So when you have the opportunity to bring jurors in from a distance who are not used to the coal industry, I think it's easy to say that you're going to find people who don't know what happened. Well, one of the things that influences these jurors' um, opening statements, and that happened this week, we're getting a sense of what the arguments are going to be from the defense and the prosecution. Ashley, give us an overview of what the prosecution said during opening statements. So we didn't hear anything from the prosecution that we didn't expect. 
They said all the things we expected them to say. They're trying to prove that Blankenship is this micromanager who had his hand in every decision at the mine, that Blankenship knew about the culture of running things improperly, and he encouraged them to continue to do that so that production would keep climbing. Um, The other point that they made that, that I thought was interesting was that Blankenship lied to these securities officials and lied to investors to protect his own personal wealth. As a CEO, he obviously holds a lot of stock in the company. And so basically he was lying to keep that stock up and protect his wealth in that stock. The defense, their their case, I think, boils down basically to one thing. Is Blankenship on trial for who he is or what he actually did. They're also trying to blame MSHA for a lot of a lot of the safety violations, including this lack of ventilation that keeps coming up. Um, basically, they're saying that that ventilation plan was forced on us by MSHA. So if there wasn't enough air flowing through that mine, that's not our fault. That's on the regulators. He's on trial for who he is and not what he did. So this reflects what Blankenship himself has said about him being under attack for political reasons. Um, Mike, There were some surprises in the opening statement, right? There were some things that happened that were not usual. That's right, Scott. It's very rare for there to be objections during opening statements in a criminal trial. Nobody wants to draw attention to the jury or look like they're trying to hide something. But one of the objections, and there were many of them, there were six of them actually, two of them led all of the lawyers to the bench to interrupt the opening statement to, to have a conference, a private conference with the judge. One of them went to the issue that you just mentioned, which is the political uh, element of this. Mr. Taylor, who's representing Don Blankenship, began talking about how Mr. Blankenship was a conservative Republican, that he disliked, he's been vocal about his dislike of the Obama administration, uh, that he's been critical of the government. And Steve Ruby, the prosecutor who was delivering the opening, stood up and objected and said, Your Honor, this was a subject to, of a ruling. And those rulings had been the night before. Judge Berger had excluded certain material from the trial. So apparently Judge Berger has said that the defense can't use that type of argument, that political argument? That's right, Scott. Judge Berger had had prevented the defense from making a selective prosecution argument that Don Blankenship is being prosecuted for his political beliefs. The same thing happened later in the opening statements where Don Blankenship's lawyers were introducing a list of safety uh, innovations that they say Mr. Blankenship is responsible for. Once again, Steve Ruby stood up, objected, and the, the lawyers went to the bench and Judge Berger apparently sustained the objection because Mr. Taylor moved on after that. Scott, if I can just add, you know, the things that the defense keeps bringing up, the things about the ventilation plan, about um, Blankenship being a political figure and that's why they're going after him, about this list of safety innovations like requiring minors to wear reflective gear or coming up with um, a sensor that they wear so if a continuous minor gets too close, it shuts off automatically. Those are points that were made in Blankenship's quote-unquote documentary that came out last summer. Mm -hmm. Those were the things that he wanted to get out about the truth about the Upper Big Branch Mine. I think that raises a good question, which is how much control does the defendant have over his own defense? Can he be directing his lawyers to say, I want these points made? Or if you're a good defense lawyer, are you making sure that the best arguments are made regardless of what your client really wants said? Well, Scott, that can be a difficult issue when you represent a high-level corporate executive, especially a CEO. And as we've talked about on an earlier episode of the podcast, Don Blankenship was a hands-on micromanager. I think it's fair to assume that he has a very hands-on role with this defense. You're going to hear recordings in this trial that are going to show Don Blankenship being an aggressive manager. And I think it's probably safe to assume from that that he's aggressively managing his defense team. 
I mean, I don't think we can say that for sure, but what I can say for sure is that he's constantly taking notes. And it's not when the prosecution is up blaming him for things and and pointing out all of his flaws. It's when his attorneys are standing before the judge that Don is taking notes at the desk and carefully watching the things that they're doing. I just felt a little twing, twing, a little feeling of pity for the defense lawyers <laughs> for Tom Blankenship, despite their multi-million dollar payoff. Um, that would be a hard job. So uh, there, there are a lot of issues that are going to be coming up um, tomorrow, and it seems like one of them involves tapes that were taken of Blankenship. What's going on with that, Mike? Yes, Scott. Right before the last witness today, which was to be Don Blankenship's former secretary. The lawyers, the jury was out of the room, and the lawyers presented argument over the admissibility of 21 recordings that the government intended to play. And for the rest of the day, there was argument over those recordings. Ten of those recordings deal directly with Don Blankenship's compensation, stock options, and his net worth. Two of those recordings deal with a reaction to a safety memo that's been discussed uh, in the trial um, by a former MSHA uh, employee who came to Massey named Bill Ross. The rest of those recordings dealt with, I think, what you could call Don Blankenship's management style. The defense team says that the recordings aren't relevant or that they're unfair, that they'll inflame the jury, and that they should be excluded entirely. If they're not excluded, the defense team says that there needs to be additional segments added to certain recordings so that they won't mislead the jury, so that it'll be fair when the recordings are played. It was an interesting argument, Scott, because it makes me think about what we do in news. And when I pull sound bites from an interview, I want to make sure that I'm not taking that out of context, that I'm not saying something that somebody didn't intend to say. And that is basically what the defense is arguing, that the prosecution is taking these sound bites out of context and they're not giving the full story. And that's why they're fighting to put in a more complete audio. The prosecution then, their return on the argument is that, you know, you've given us these additional audio segments that you would like to be included, but these audio segments don't add anything. They don't add any context. All they do is put your position, the defense's position, into the prosecution's evidence. So Blankenship himself ordered these tapes to be made? He made them himself. That's my understanding, Mike. This is a la Richard Nixon, right? <laughs> I mean, the t- the tapes that are being used in this trial now, either for his defense or for his prosecution, they, they started with him. Um, so we'll see whether or not those are uh, admitted into the evidence tomorrow and what will be allowed. Um, just one last quick question. What sort of family is in the courtroom watching this? Who is there? And, and what's been their reaction to all of this this week? I, in particular, have been trying to be in touch with the family and try, the families and trying to figure out their feelings this week. Um, I've met a couple of people who lost brothers, who lost sons, who lost uncles. And it's interesting to watch. They all have said to me over and over again, we're glad this is finally happening. We're glad this is finally here. It's interesting to watch, especially because the pa- the first two witnesses were really focused on safety in general and safety specifically at UBB. And as you watch them talk about these are the things that we did. When you watch, when we listen to Bobby Polly talk about, I cheated on dust samples. I called ahead. You can see these family members shaking their heads, saying, "Yep, my family members told me all about that. I recognize what you're saying." And Scott, I would add that I think the family members probably have a pretty strong reaction to this idea coming from the defense team that individual miners were responsible for health and safety decisions at the mine. 
I think that the family members would have a strong reaction to the idea that any of their loved ones or that somebody like Bobby Polly had an ability to set safety policies at Upper Pick Branch. Well, and I remember covering the Sago Mine disaster, sitting in a meeting in a church with the families and being so impressed with how much detail every family member knew minor and non-minor family members, about what happens in mines. So I'm sure they're sitting there and they're nodding because they know. They understand that this is how the mine worked. Um, thank you both for being here. Mike Hissom is a former assistant U.S. attorney um, who's been watching the trial with us. And Ashton Mara, of course, is our reporter who's been there every day of the trial. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. You've been listening to Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. Blankenship on Trial is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our theme music is by Matt Jackfurt. See illustrations from the trial, daily updates, and more on our website, wvpublic.org. And make sure you follow us on Twitter for the latest, at Ashton Mara and at WV Public News. Thanks for listening.